Welcome to the Heart of Rescue with NMDR podcast. National Mill Dog Rescue is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to rescue, rehabilitate, and rehome discarded breeding dogs. And we are able to do this because of support from listeners like you. Each episode, we will highlight some of our background, share heartwarming stories about rescue and the lives of the dogs and humans that we've been able to impact. Plus, you can hear from members of our team and the founder of National Mill Dog Rescue, Teresa Strader. We hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Glenn Pierce, and my job title at National Mill Dog Rescue is Behavior and Training Manager. How long have you been in your current position? I've only been in the position for about 11 months. I started on March 16th of 2020, which was uh, incidentally the day that the COVID-19 lockdown started. It was a really interesting start. And before you came to NMDR, where were you and how long were you with them? Before National Mill Dog Rescue, I was at Best Friends Animal Sanctuary in Kanab, Utah, which is um, pretty well known. Best Friends is a national brand, as is National Mill Dog Rescue for that matter. Um, Best Friends is a huge organization and they started with an animal sanctuary in Kanab, Utah, which is um, southern Utah, about a mile from the Arizona border and beautiful country. Uh, really, really gorgeous down there. And um, I was there for about four years as a uh, dog behavior consultant. Great. How did you get involved with the National Mill Dog Rescue? Well, as I mentioned, I, I consider National Mill Dog Rescue to be a national brand. I was aware of them for quite some time. As a matter of fact, years ago, when they were installing the turf play yards, um, I received a mailer or something, I think, from them. And it had all these pictures of the, of the, the turf play yard installation, if I recall correctly. And I hung it up in my office at Best Friends because I thought, what a great idea. This is so, you know, this is so cool. So I was well aware of National Mill Dog Rescue for a while, you know, thanks to the great work that they do and the, the great work that everyone there does in terms of getting the word out. Here's a fun one. What does a typical day look like for you at National Mill Dog Rescue? I'm sure no two days are the same. Typical days. Wow, that's a, that is a good question. They're very fun because there is no such thing as a typical day, really. But um I can tell you what they include to a large degree. There's a lot of stuff I do in preparation for actually being at the kennel. So I do spend a lot of time at home doing things like writing training plans and uh, looking at adopter applications and working with adopters on the phone. And so there's a ton of, of desk work. And I know that's kind of boring, but it is a very significant part of the job. When I, the reason I like to do that at home though is because when I'm actually at National Mill Dog Rescue, I like to be working with the dogs or the people or both. And they're both extremely important, equally important. Most people in the business will tell you that uh, animal behavior consulting is a people business. It's not an animal business. I work a lot with the dogs on, on my own. Uh, you know, the behavior uh, program dogs are the ones that are the most behaviorally challenged. We call it rehab dogs. The rehab team is a volunteer team. We're extremely lucky to have so many very, very committed volunteers that are very dog savvy and experienced and willing to work with our most behaviorally disadvantaged dogs. I'll work with dogs as much as I can while I'm there. And that could be working frequently working with uh, fearful dogs, helping them learn to, to feel better about me, about people in general, about new situations. We do play therapy, which means we get the, the fearful dogs out with other dogs. And that generally helps a ton to help them feel more comfortable. And if they can feel more comfortable running around with other dogs, when there are people nearby, that helps uh, them feel more comfortable around people too. And then there's all kinds of other things as well. We have some crazy dogs that aren't fearful, that just need uh, some manners. 
And so we'll work on all kinds of matters like that. Other things that we that I often do while I'm at the kennel are car work. I work on helping dogs feel better about getting into a car and going for car rides. I play with the dogs, which is really, really fun. <laughs> like I love to run around and play with dogs. I probably should make sure that I mention right away uh, that I'm the luckiest guy in the whole world because I'm living in a place that I love and I am doing something for my living that I am just incredibly in love with. And so I, I just can't imagine a more perfect situation. And um, and then I spend a lot of time with the people there at the, at the kennel as well. And that includes the staff who are extremely important. They spend probably more time with the dogs than anybody. And actually, when I first arrived at National Dog Rescue, I automatically made all the staff members members of the rehab team because I felt that their inclusion in the programs that we have uh, and the feedback that they give and everything is very, very important, uh, no question about it. So I spent time with them, uh, talking to them about the dogs and working with them with the dogs. They help me, I help them. And then we have our wonderful volunteer base. And I love to work with all the volunteers. I'm just so incredibly impressed at the dedication that we have at National Mill Dog Rescue, these wonderful volunteers that spend so much time there and uh, they get there at all odd uh, days of the, excuse me, hours of the, of the day and night. We have people cleaning and doing meds at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. And they'll frequently have questions for me or um, if I see them working with the dog, I can make some suggestions. and. So I love working with those volunteers. And then of course, there's the rehab team, which is our all volunteer behavior team. And I do love to spend time with them as well, working with them, with the dogs, together with them on the dogs, because you can accomplish a lot of things uh, with more than one person uh, when you're doing dog behavior than you can by yourself. And so the team is extremely valuable and I, we learn a lot mutually. I learn a lot from them and they learn a lot from me. My time at the kennel really, yeah, it, it consists of spending time, lots and lots of time with people and dogs. That's great. I'm sure that everyone who gets to spend time with dogs really appreciates, you know, having that extra responsibility of being part of the rehab team and being part of, you know, something bigger. So it sounds like, you know, the dogs and the people both inspire you a lot daily. Is there anything in particular that inspires you? If you could name you know, one thing that inspires you the most? Success and progress. And, and that's the wonderful thing about this kind of work is that the work itself is its own reward. There's nothing quite like seeing a, a really, really fearful dog start to make progress and then watch that progress as, as he or she tracks through it. The feeling that I get, and, and working with fearful dogs is really, I think one of the most important things that someone can do when they're working with dogs and it, is, it was always my favorite kind of work, uh, that is working with fearful dogs. And by the way, fearful dogs, that covers both shy and aggressive dogs. And I categorize all of that as fear because if a dog runs away, whether they run away or they, they actually growl and try to bite, they're doing it because they're afraid. Obviously those are the dogs that are the most disadvantaged and have start off having the worst chances of going uh, into an adoptive home. And seeing them make progress is incredibly exciting and inspiring for me. And so it kind of feeds on itself. I am very lucky that way. And I will say that I, I really know that to be the case with most of the rehab team as well. They're amazing people. They're very, very dedicated. And it's, um, it's always really, really happy day uh, and inspiring time for us when we, when we see these dogs becoming more confident and comfortable and starting to open up. Would you like to share about some of the dogs that have stuck out to you in particular over the past year or so since you've been with us? Sure, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, 
Well, we've had so many. Stay tuned. More of this episode after a very short break. Would you like the opportunity to make an even greater impact to the lives of rescue dogs? Consider becoming a sponsor of our next episode. Just send an email to mediacontact at nmdr.org for more information. One of the dogs that uh, made an impression on me when I first arrived was was Nick. He was a, a little white puppy mill dog. And I'll tell you honestly, I'm not that great with breeds. I've always been kind of a regular shelter guy. Never paid a whole lot of attention to dog breeds, which is a bit of a disadvantage sometimes. But honestly, I like to treat every single dog as an individual anyway. So it doesn't really matter to me what a dog looks like. But Nick was a little white dog and he bit a lot of people. And over the, cor- over the course of the first months that I was there, I saw Nick go from a very, very fearful dog who did a lot of growling and snapping and biting to uh, a dog that actually started being happy to see people. And and he had actually some human friends that he that he enjoyed seeing because he knew that they were gonna give him food and walks and outside time and everything. It was kind of funny because Nick being this cute little white dog, there was there was this sort of this, this undertone to his name. Let's go, oh, that's Nick, you know, he bites people. So, but he got to the point where some of the wonderful dog caregivers that we had have our, were, were uh, working with our grooming team to, to groom him which was not easy, obviously, because a dog like Nick would really need special handling. And so the dog care team were some of his best friends and they really leveraged that in terms of helping him along and helping him make progress and keeping him clean, which is always very important. And Nick went home, I think it was in July. Uh, He was adopted into a happy home to an adopter that uh, is taking really, really good care of him. And so when I first came, he was one of the more challenging dogs. He'd been there for a few months and uh, it, it seemed like he was going to be one of the long-termers. And so he made an impression and uh, and he really did make quite a bit of progress after I, I arrived. And so uh, I'm always going to remember Nick very fondly. I will bring us up to uh, a book. I'll book and Nick because we're working now with a dog named Dixie, who I think is a very similar case. Dixie was a severe bite case. When she first arrived, you wouldn't let anyone near her without biting them. Now we have some really good dog handlers on the rehab team. And so we were able to work out ways that we could pick her up and carry her to play groups and handle her. But for the first few weeks, maybe a couple months, when we tried to, um, when we did that, there was always the danger that she was bite. and. Um, if she didn't bite, she would fear poop. Can I say that on a podcast? Okay. So, um, little Dixie, the biter and fear pooper, we didn't have her available for adoption until just actually two days ago was when I suggested we we first put her on the website. Now she's going to be a very special adoption. She's going to need to go to a home that has uh, people that are experienced with biting dogs because one of my one of my very important functions as behavior manager is to make sure that the, the behavior program dogs go to homes that uh, where they're going to be safe. And that is where the dogs are going to be safe and the humans are going to be safe. So it's going to be very important for Dixie to have an experienced guardian, but um, she has made such progress. You know, she's walking on leash. She still doesn't like to be picked up and probably always won't like to be picked up, but uh, we can do it now without her biting us. And, uh, and she really enjoys her, her playtime and she'll come right up to her human friends now during playgroups and take cheese from us. 
And uh, and so she's come a hugely long way. Very, very proud of her and the team for working with her and getting her through the tough times that she had. Yeah, Nick and Dixie, that, that kind of, uh, it does nice, kind of nicely and neatly bookend my, my time here over the past year, because Nick was here when I started and Dixie's here now. And they were both little dogs, little, um, kind of the, the, the type of dog that you might typically think of when you think of a puppy mill survivor, little white dogs. We also, we've also had some other standouts. Um, National Mill Dog Rescue once in a while will take a transfer from a shelter. And having been from a standard shelter background myself, some of those dogs are the ones that I find myself relating to the most easily. First of all, because they're often mixed breed dogs, they're a bit larger. Kim Lehman, who's the wonderful director of operations at National Mill Dog Rescue, makes it a point to, to always try to have a bully breed there to help you know dogs that are not only disadvantaged because of their history of puppy mills because of the discrimination they might experience because of their breed. And so when I first arrived, there was a dog named Dumpling and she was a beautiful big bully dog. She had some play biting issues, but she was very friendly. It, it, in fact, ironically, all the bully breeds that we've had there have been super friendly with people, which is not surprising because they generally are. I remember um, her, she was gorgeous. And then we had uh, Ocean who was another sort of pity uh, dog. And she was just a beautiful, beautiful sort of blue pit bull, big, big girl, kind of actually could have uh, afforded to lose some weight, but she was super fun. And, uh, and then there was Handsome, who was a standout. He was from a very special uh, situation and he was tremendous. And he almost looked like a cartoon dog. He had cropped ears and this tremendous chest and a little tiny rear end and a giant head and giant jaws. One of the gentlest, friendliest dogs you could ever possibly imagine. Very stereotypical sort of pit bull dog though. And that brings us right up to Mina, who we have now, who's a very special girl of mine. She's, uh, I really, really love Mina. She's got uh, some very serious health problems though, and is gonna be in hospice care. So those guys jump out at me as well, as much because of the, I guess she, they and I have similar backgrounds, we'll say that. <laughs> so you kind of touched on this earlier where you're, you know, obviously you're rehabbing dogs, but you're really training people, right? So is, do you think that's the biggest myth about your profession that you'd like to debunk? Or are there other things that people maybe don't realize about what you do? That's a great question. And I'm really glad you asked it. And there's a whole bunch of ways I could answer it. So I'm gonna do my best to, to answer it um, without being boring. I, I think that once people really think about it, they do realize it's, it's pretty much sensible common sense that it's a, pre, it's a people profession and not an animal profession. When you're working with dog behavior, you're training people as much as you're training dogs. I think that that's uh, pretty well accepted. There are some very, very popular myths about dog behavior that good peer-reviewed science has dispelled. I should mention all of my training tools and techniques are evidence-based. That means that they're based on the very best research, peer-reviewed research that we can find on dog behavior, but uh, all living organisms adhere to the same laws, of, the same basic laws of behavior. And so we can learn about dog behavior by studying people too. And so there's all kinds of great science on behavior out there. And there's a lot of myths that have come up you know, over the decades and centuries about dog behavior that that science is dispelling. As a lot of my, um, my colleagues on the rehab team know, one of the, the ones that I, I like to dispel as much as I can is the dominance myth. And that is that dogs vie for dominance, they vie for status, that they 
sort of they recognize a linear hierarchy not only with the other dogs in the household but the people too that they try to be the quote-unquote top dog or alpha dog there's all, all kinds of great research that that indicates that this is really a myth in fact the alpha dog myth is it is a myth uh, it's just that free roaming dogs you know they don't form packs with a, a, like a static linear hierarchy. Dogs don't vie for dominance. In other words, they don't they don't want to be dominant individual in, in the home. They may act like it because they want that food more than everybody else does, or they want that spot on the couch more than everybody else does. And some dogs might be pretty grumpy or aggressive about, you know, about, about uh, getting those things and keeping them. But it's not about dominance. It's about what that individual wants at that particular point in time and what they're willing to do to get it or keep it. And so if there was one thing I would say to everybody listening, it would be, don't worry about dominance. Don't worry about your dog being dominant. Think instead about what your dog wants at this point and what is motivating your dog to behave the way that they're, they're behaving. And let's, let's talk about that as the cause of the behavior because dominance is really not a helpful concept when it comes to companion companion dog behavior modification. And if anybody would like to see the documentation for that, I would be happy to post it on Facebook or something like that. You could see all the research that, that supports that. So that is definitely probably the, the one piece of misinformation about dog behavior that I feel like uh, everybody could um, do well to, to know about. The other thing is of course, that all dog behavior modification is best done without any coercion. That is without any uh, physical force, anything that makes the dog uncomfortable, like uh, intimidation or startle or fear or pain, obviously. One of the legacies of, of military dog training in, in World War II was that uh, whenever we came back from the war, companion dog training was the same and it was all about choke chains and prong collars and leash corrections and, and that type of thing. Well, we know a lot from research on all kinds of species that that is definitely not optimal in terms of teaching. So it doesn't work for one thing as well as this force-free training. I just happen to think also that our dogs and other animal friends deserve better. And so another thing that um, I like to just stress right out of the gate is that you don't need to even yell at your dog. You don't even need to say no to your dog. In fact, I never say no to a dog. And I'm sure we'll have all kinds of opportunities to talk about what the alternatives are. <laughs> That's the end of this episode, but stay tuned for more of The Heart of Rescue with NMDR. Visit our website at nmdr.org to see our adoptable dogs and follow us on your favorite social media platform to see what's going on with National Mill Dog Rescue every day. Stay well and thank you for liking and sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Bye for now.